Please turn in Scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for forty-two months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes uh, uh, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. It was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of mark on the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. We continue our worship singing to God. Well, we come to Revelation chapter 13. And here we are introduced to the second member of the unholy trinity. You know, the real trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, Satan copies and apes these things, and he has an unholy trinity. There's the dragon, or Satan, as we were introduced in the previous chapter, chapter 12. And we have the beast, or the Antichrist, who apes the sun, and then the false prophet, who in various ways apes the Holy Spirit. Now this first half of Revelation chapter 13 is about this second member of the unholy trinity, the beast, or the Antichrist. 
Now we'll find out many things about the Antichrist, about the beast in this, in this chapter. But one of the things that we'll see in the end is that he wins, at least for a moment. It says that it was granted to him in verse 7 to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, we should take great comfort that it's only those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. They're not Christians. They're not believers. They're not going to be worshiping this beast. They're not going to be falling into these satanic lies. And we can be thankful for that. But everyone else will be. And indeed, it was given authority. Was, the authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and also to overcome the saints. Now, in essence, that means that the beast has some sort of victory. And we'll speak a little bit more in, in time to come with regard to how that relates to the victory we talked about last time. Because it says that we overcame him. We overcame the dragon, the one who's the source of the power of the beast. And yet here, the beast has power over us. Here he overcomes. Well, I think that there's two things we need to understand here. The first is that this is a temporary victory. It doesn't last forever. Soon enough, we'll come to the point at which the beast and the false prophet, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, Satan himself, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they're all cast into the lake of fire. That's not a far off into the infinite future. That day is coming soon enough. And second of all, that the kind of victory is not a good kind of victory. It's only a specious victory. It's only the kind of appearance of a victory in this world. We have overcome him. We have overcome Satan and all of his forces by the shed blood of Christ. There is no doubt about that. And nothing's going to change it. That's the real and solid and perfect and permanent victory. But it's speaking here of a different sphere. Speaking of the sphere of the world. Speaking of the, the sphere of things that we can see. Of numbers and of power and of money and authority and those sorts of things. And in this sphere, for the time being, the beast wins and we lose. And we might as well come to terms with that reality. Now, beyond coming to, to terms with the fact that in this worldly sphere, in terms of just money and power and authority and numbers and all the rest of it, that he wins and we lose, there's also something very explicable about the nature of that victory. Unlike the fact that Christ and, and God's people eventually win, which seems in human terms completely inexplicable, there's no way of understanding how that happens in human terms, because it does not make any sense at all. When Paul talks about the gospel, he talks about this thing that is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Now, there's nobody outside of those two categories. You're either a Jew or a Greek, and in one case, it's, the gospel is a complete stumbling block, something that you can't get over without falling over, and in the other case, it's just foolishness, absolutely contrary to everything that they imagine to be something wise, something attractive, something good, something that is worth listening to. And that's a whole world. So it's an amazing thing then when Christ and his church and his people eventually have the victory. 
But here with the beast, there is nothing so very inexplicable about these things. Because as we look at this chapter, we're going to find out about why the beast wins for now. That's the title. Why the beast wins for now. Because his methods are completely explainable. They are fully explicable in human terms. Though it's meant to look like the true religion, though this beast is meant to look like Christ, deep down, it's all satanic lies. It's all carnal religion. It's all worldly wisdom. It's all the things that appeal to the flesh and to the unregenerate man and things that make perfect sense to them. It's not foolishness to them. It's great stuff. It works well. It's something they're going to applaud. What is it about this Antichrist specifically that's so appealing? Well, I've mentioned that the basis is it looks like the real thing because no one's dumb enough. Well, okay, there's a few people out there who actually wear pentagrams and black clothes and actually say they bow down to Satan, but that's a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. On the whole, people aren't dumb enough to want to worship the loser. They want at least the appearance in some way or another to worship the winner. They want, the real, they, they want at least the appearance of the real thing. So that the basis is this specious appearance of being actual Christianity. But secondly, also, we see that the beast puts on a show. We'll talk about that, obviously. These are the points that I'm explaining. So we don't have to explain every bit of it right at the moment. But I just want us to see that the beast puts on a show. And that makes perfect sense to fallen, natural human beings. They're going to come to see a show. The beast also blasphemes God's truth because there's this, this amazing propaganda campaign that goes on. The beast and all of his organs worldwide, they are constantly using every media outlet known to man and speaking those things that make perfect sense to mankind in this propaganda campaign, speaking against true religion. You sometimes wonder why it is that of all things, Christianity and its purity and its particular saving uh, doctrines of the penal substitutionary atonement, salvation by faith alone, the reality of sin and of hell and those sorts of things are so universally spoken against. And why it seems like you've pulled a string and, and immediately someone from the world will have some sort of answer for it as if they've been catechized by Satan himself. It's because they have. It's because they have. It's the world and, and every, every media outlet you can imagine is being arrayed against the true religion. This great campaign of propaganda is being waged against the truth. The beast will blaspheme God's truth and condition people against it. And fourthly, we'll see that the beast wins, as we mentioned, for now. He is given this authority for the time being. Well, in some sense, I really hate to preach a sermon that's all about the beast or even explaining why it is that the beast wins for now. But I hope that the false makes us to know and also to appreciate the true all the more. And maybe at the end, even in seeing this, this counterfeit, we'll see something of the real thing of Christ Jesus himself. But as we consider why it is the beast wins, we go to our first point, which is that the beast is almost like Christ. It says in verse 1, I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a, bl a blasphemous name. 
Now, we know that the reality here, I'm not speaking of the appearance, but the, the actual deep-down reality of the beast is that he is the spitting image of the dragon. Notice those seven heads and ten horns. It's exactly like what we have in Revelation 12:3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And indeed, we know that the dragon is the one who gave him his authority, his throne, and great authority. And that's just like the father giving the son all authority in heaven and on earth. It's just like the fact that the son is the perfect image of the father. We wouldn't have known the father except that the son, who is the perfect image of the father, came and revealed the father to us. And so in this apish imitation The beast is, in fact, the perfect spitting image of Satan. But, though that's the case deep down, he is dressed up in various ways to resemble, in superficial ways, Jesus Christ. Now, we know that from Revelation 5, 6, I I beheld in the midst of the throne and four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. And so there's a kind of specious resemblance there with this beast. We'll have that uh, even more so with the false prophet in verse 11. I saw another beast coming out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. Well, that's a perfect way to explain how it is that Satan operates. He is having something that appears to be like Jesus Christ, yet the deep down reality and the content are the words of Satan. Well, not only that, we see that the death and resurrection of this beast is an apish imitation of Christ. It's not just that he has some horns that maybe from a distance sort of looks like the lamb, but it also says in verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. Exactly, again, like the description of Christ himself in Revelation 5, 6, this lamb who was slain. Of course, that's the difference, isn't it? This lamb really was slain and he rose again. Christ, or the, uh, uh, the Antichrist, of course, didn't actually rise again because no one's done that except the Lord Jesus Christ. He really did die and he really did rise again. But here we only have the appearance. One of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. Now we can really look at that two different ways, can't we? Because on the one hand, we say that the actual reality of him having died is not like Christ. Christ is a real thing. He actually did die, lay down his life for sinners, and rose again the third day. But here we have, uh, so that, that's one part of it. But there's also the reality of something we were talking about before. And that is that, that, uh, that fight between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that has been going on since the Garden of Eden. This great prophecy, this great proto-evangelion, the, the uh, history uh, or the, uh, the future of the gospel being foreshadowed in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, where it's told that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, Satan. And we know that that's the case. And last week we said when that happened, the moment of that crushing of Satan's head happened on the cross when he laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for us. Well, now there's some reality that we're talking about here. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. 
Well, the reality is his wound is incurable. The reality is it is a deadly wound that will soon enough lead to its permanent destruction. He has been wounded mortally on the cross. But there's an appearance that his deadly wound was healed. It's very important for us to understand as we carry on in this life that Satan is a defeated enemy. But it is equally important for us to understand that he sure doesn't act like it. He is defeated. He has a wound that will surely lead to his death. Yet he carries on for the time being as if there's nothing wrong with him. He wants us to think that way, of course, that there's not, uh, permanently, that there's, he's not going to be defeated. We can't ever fall into that, but neither can we fall into thinking that there's no enemy worth thinking about, that he has no power, no teeth left whatsoever. Because the fact is, in the providence of God, he has been given great power and authority for the time being. And in fact, he continues to rule over the people of this earth until the second coming of Christ. He is the prince of the power of the air that rules over the whole earth, as we'll see reminded again and again in Revelation. Well, 2 Corinthians 11.13 lays down the principle for us, the fact that this, this false, this beast, is almost like Christ. It says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. It's no great thing. We can't imagine that that's not going to happen. We can't imagine that there won't be false apostles and, and those who are speaking the truth, or speaking falsehood as if it were truth. Because that is the great strategy of Satan himself. He dresses himself up like he was a lamb. And that's what we have here with the Antichrist. Now I would also say that the resemblance doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to look like the way an unregenerate person might think Christ really looks like. That's an important distinction, isn't it? Because the real saints, they can tell the difference. They hear the voice of the true living God in Scripture. And they're not going to go to a false shepherd. They're not going to go to a false prophet. They're not going to fall into the sway of the Antichrist. He hasn't been given that much power. But on the other hand, his, his, his get-up, his appearance is going to look just the way that someone who's unregenerate, someone from the world who isn't really uh, a Christian, would think this is the way Christ and his church is going to look like. Now that's very important because what it says in Second Thessalonians is that he's going to usurp rule over things that are called Christian. It says, let no one deceive you in Second Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Who what? Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Because that's what he always wants. It's not only, not merely, that only a tiny fraction of people are dumb enough to actually worship Satan with a pentagram and all the rest of it. It's because that's not what Satan wants. He doesn't want to be worshipped as Satan. He wants to be worshipped as God. He wants, to be, he wants to have his reign over all things that are called Christian. He wants to have his reign over the church. 
He wants to be like the Most High. He wants to be like God. And so his stratagem is not to build up the church of Satan, but to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's going to usurp rule over the true church. So let's not be surprised then when something false goes by the name of Christian or something goes by the name of evangelical or something goes by the name of reformed. Whatever it is, that the word that we use among ourselves to try to, as we try to distinguish, and it's a moving target over history, isn't it? Because there's a real church, the, the Satan infiltrates it, tries to take it over. And then we move on to something else. There's a reformation. Or there's some, some sort of other thing that happens. There are the, the divisions uh, that happened over old liberalism a hundred years ago. And we move on to something else and we try to call ourselves something else. Sometimes we have to have a name that's about three, four things long just to get the distinction right. But whatever is known as the true is eventually going to be taken over by Satan or attempted at least. And we have to be ready for that because he wants rule over the true church. Now there's one way. I I said that he looks almost like Christ and it's really important because that almost is there. He looks in every sort of superficial way but almost like Christ. One way that he's not is that the beast is going to represent the broad way. Just as Christ cannot act but in accordance with his father's nature so it is the beast has to act in ways consistent with Satan. He's going to act in ways that are consistent with himself. And you know what it says in Matthew 7, 13, speaking of the broad and the narrow ways, right? It says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there are ravenous wolves. You see the context? You see, what, you see what Jesus is getting at? The whole reason he gives us the idea of the broad way versus the narrow way is because he says there are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing who come to you in my name saying that they're preaching the way of truth. And you know the way you're going to tell the difference in this, in this part of scripture, the way that you know the difference is because they're going to be preaching a broad way. They're going to be teaching something that's all-encompassing, that's easy, Whereas the real thing is narrow, the real thing is difficult. I've recently heard, once again, somebody preaching against, speaking against the idea that Christians, uh, that a church ought to be, uh, we don't want to be narrow. You know, oh yes, we want to be, we want to be orthodox, but we don't want to be narrow. Who wants to be narrow? What a terrible thing to be narrow-minded, or your church to be a narrow, sectarian type of church. Well, wake up. Jesus himself says that the real thing is narrow. By definition, by nature, by design, it is narrow. And there are few who find it. Because there are few who are chosen. It's not anything to be wondered at. It's not anything to be thought of as something that we can't tolerate. It's the way it is. So... In all ways, except for that one little thing I just mentioned, this beast, this Antichrist, is going to look like Christ himself. Let's now talk about a little bit more of this broad way in our second point. Because the beast can't help it, he's got to put on a show. 
The beast puts on a show. As we see in, starting in verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. And I think that's the key right there. All the world marveled after the beast. They were amazed with this beast. And they said, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with this beast? This is an amazing, marvelous beast. And they marveled after him. You see, rather than the lamb, this unassuming lamb that the true Christ is like, here he is likened to a leopard, he's likened to a bear, he's likened to a lion in these sort of spectacular ways, these more spectacular animals. They're not just plain vanilla lambs. He's more powerful in earthly terms. He's more exciting in earthly terms. The lamb's not very fast moving. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are some nature shows that have been made about sheep, but not many. Typically, when you turn on the channel that has the, the shows about nature, you'll probably find something about lions and tigers and leopards and bears and those sorts of things, and not many about sheep. Well, that's the nature of the beast. He's going to be spectacular. He's going to put on a show. And the way that this works is that all people are going to marvel after this beast because he's just so marvelous. All those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Well, we already spoke of how it is that he is that uh, the, the Antichrist is the, the leader of the Broadway. But I just want us to consider how it is that he's going to make them to marvel. It says now in Second Thessalonians 2.3, that let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come until the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. We already spoke of this with regard to how he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God. But we haven't yet gotten to the method. That's the mission. The mission of the Antichrist is to exalt himself over all that is actually called God, all that is called Christian, all that is called properly Christ. Now, what's, what's the method then? What well, goes on to explain that? Let's see in verse 9. And the coming of the lawlessness, a lawless one is according with the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. It's in accordance with power, with signs, and with lying wonders. If you ever see a religion that is predicated on the exercise of worldly power, you can be sure it's not the real thing. If you ever see a religion that is predicated on the exercise of the showy, of the amazing, then you can be sure that it's not the real thing either. The general principle is that anti-Christian religion is going to be spectacular in one way or another. Earthly, worldly, carnal people are going to walk in and they're going to be impressed. It's going to be impressive to them. 
because that's the way it's designed to work. You're going to be impressed by the exercise of power, by the flash of money and the flash of showmanship and of the, the general show that's been put on. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, which as I've mentioned in one of the applications, our confession says that the Pope is an antichrist and this is an anti-Christian religion. You, you, what sort of nature is it? If we were go, go to the Roman Catholic Church down the road, what would we see? Well, we would see beautiful pictures. We would see gold and we would see uh, uh, fancy images. We would see uh, a, a show. There would maybe be a procession. I wouldn't just be wearing a, a plain suit. I'd be wearing some sort of fancy getup, wouldn't I? It'd be impressive to you. And there'd this be this amazing hocus-pocus kind of show of the Mass. And I'd say, oh, it's bread. And now, it's the body of Christ. Behold it. Do you see it? And in this hocus-pocus sort of amazing pseudo-false miracle then, you'd all be amazed at this show. And if any element of that show wasn't there, you wouldn't be satisfied because you want the show. And the bigger and better the show, the better it is. And likewise with Eastern Orthodoxy, as I said, just my recent time in Ukraine, I could not believe just the extent of the images and the incense and the show that goes on. Well, there's the old version of the show and there's a the new version of the show. There's a sort of old technology that, that Satan's been using for a long time, the Antichrist has been making use of, and there's kind of new technology as well. Because it's not just Roman Catholicism, it's not just Eastern Orthodoxy. There are different forms of the Protestant faith that is all about the show. That you would get the, the sincere impression that you are at a concert or that you are at a movie or something along those lines. Because it's about the show rather than the word of God. Well, anti-Christian religion is spectacular because the, the beast, though he wants to look like Christ, he just can't help himself. He wants to put on a show. Now, that's not at all the way the, the true and living uh, God is. That's not the way Jesus Christ is. As we'll see later on, he's not like that at all. There is nothing in him that we should desire. And there's no beauty. There's no show that we should desire Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, the beast blasphemes the truth. It says in verse 5, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue 42 months. And he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. First of all, where is the real power of this false Christ? Where is the real power of the Antichrist? It's the same place that Satan himself has power. Thankfully, it has not been given to him omnipotence. Rather, it's been given to him a mouth to speak these lies and these deceptions. And so it is that his stand-in, his son, his image, the Antichrist, his great power is in speaking these things. The great power in his, in his mouth. And he operates by way of half-truth. He, he operates by way of distortion. He operates by way of propaganda against the truth. This is his great propaganda campaign. He's going to blaspheme the truth. He began it in the Garden of Eden when he blasphemed the way of truth and he said, did God really say? God wouldn't say that. Well, the only reason, if God did say that, the only reason he said that is because he's mean, he's insecure, he's selfish, and he doesn't want what's best for you. 
And if you know what's best for you, you won't listen to him and you'll go your own way. And throughout all of history, he's been doing the same sort of thing. He's been twisting the word of God one way or another. The temptation of Christ in the desert. How did he begin? He didn't pull out the Necronomicon or some sort of false satanic Bible. He actually pulls out the real thing and he distorts it and he twists it. Matthew 4, 5. The devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He shall give your, his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You see how that is? It's absolute truth. If you look that up, that's exactly what that verse says. He has not misquoted it. Sometimes he does. Often he does, but he didn't this time. The only thing is, he misused it. Took it out of its context. He didn't harmonize it with the rest of scripture. He didn't harmonize it with the rest of true theology. And he misused it. In order to get the Son of God, if he could have won, to do something that would have disqualified him from being our Savior. He twists the truth. And of course, the heart of this all is to oppose God's truth from beginning to end. He's working this great propaganda campaign in every way. You know that... uh, uh, Remember this time when Jesus himself called Peter Satan? Why did he call him Satan? Because he really was? No, because he was imitating Satan. And at that moment, he was acting as an organ of Satan. It says in Matthew sixteen twenty one, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, and you're, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This was not Peter's idea of good religion. There wasn't much power in it. Suffering? Death? doesn't sound like something that he wanted to hear. And so he says, far be it from you. Well, in that way, he was acting as an organ of Satan. Because he's being mindful, not of the things of God, but the things of men. And what you're going to hear from Satan is a hundred different, a hundred thousand different varieties of the things of men. There is one variety of the things of God. There's one version of it. All around the world, throughout all of time, there has been only one word of God, only one true gospel, only one true faith, one true religion. But there have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of false varieties of the same. And in all these things, you're going to have a hearty dose of the things of man. Whereas the real things of God are going to be spoken against. That was the thing, that was the insidious thing about what Peter said there. He's speaking against the real thing. He's saying, far be it. This is a bad thing. You don't want it. And that's the nature of this great propaganda campaign. He's twisting the real thing, and he's also speaking against the truth and every opportunity that he has. And he's getting the idea across to us, and he does it rather well, that the heart of the gospel, the death of Christ on the cross, Dying for our sins and rising again the third day is something terrible. Something that we'd never want. 
something that's unattractive to us, that we should want something else. Well, John 8:43 says, "Why do you not understand my speech?" Good question, right? Sometimes we talk to people and we say, "Why don't you understand the gospel?" I don't understand why you don't understand. Well, Jesus has the answer. He says, why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You see how that goes? Satan and all of his children and all those that he has authority over worldwide, they are inclined to believe the lie. They are inclined to believe the things of this world. And these Pharisees were a perfect example of it. In that time, what name did they go by? They didn't go by Satan worshiper, did they? There were no, no pentagrams on the Pharisees. They came in the name of the true religion. And if you were to ask anyone, you'd say, who are the Orthodox people here? They'd say, well, the Pharisees, of course. And that's what they went by. But yet they were thoroughly infiltrated by the things of the world, the things of the flesh, the lies of Satan. And that at the heart of it, beyond all this great big appearance of truth, this appearance of religion, the heart of it was in deep opposition to Christ and to his word. The heart of it was in opposition to Christ and his atoning sacrifice because they hated Christ. And that's, by the way, why Satan always gets a receptive ear for his propaganda program. He is not fighting against the tide when he's doing these things. He is swimming with the tide, certainly. Because all the world naturally, as we begin our lives as fallen human beings... We, by nature, hate Christ and his word. And so when Satan comes peddling his lies, they have a ready and receptive ear in every natural, unregenerate heart. Well, by these things, as it says in Second Peter 2, the way of truth will be blasphemed. It's not just, by the way, Christ who's being blasphemed. It's his word that's being blasphemed, and it's also his people that are being blasphemed. Remember how it says that it's not just Christ himself, but also his temple and all those who dwell in heaven. Who does that mean? That's the church. That's us. So if you're a Christian, you can expect then that you yourself will be spoken against. That's what the word blaspheme means. It just means speaking against someone. And... Satan and the Antichrist and all those who speak for him are not going to stop just at speaking against Christ himself, speaking against his word. They're going to also speak against his people. Therefore, we can expect that the way of truth to which we belong is going to be evil spoken of and that we personally are going to be evil spoken of. That leads us to our fourth and final point that the beast wins for now. Because in verse 7 it says, It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the other side of the coin in Revelation 12. The other side of that coin in which we were able to overcome him. We overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb. 
The other side of that warfare is that for the time being, he is given authority over us, and he is overcoming us. How do we reconcile that? Well, first of all, as I mentioned in the introduction, we're looking at two different times. This is a temporary victory. This is a victory that only happens for a little bit. It's only a seeming sort of victory. That for a time, it is given to Satan, it is given to the false, uh, to the beast, the, uh, the Antichrist, to win over the saints. And there are definite hints that towards the end of the world, it will get even worse along these, these lines. We mentioned culminating for a brief moment in which the voice of the bride and the bridegroom are no longer to be heard. It's temporary. But on the other hand, and mainly, this is looking at two completely different spheres. As even at this one moment right now, in this one moment of time, we both have the victory over the beast and he has the victory over us. How is that? Well, different spheres. What is his sphere that he has? He is the prince of the power of the air of this earth. This world, this present world and its physical things and its power and its authority and its uh, influence and all these sorts of things and material wealth and the rest of it, those things are given to Satan. And to those, that's what he says, right? In the, the very temptations of Christ, he says, all these things, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory have been given to me and I can give it to whomever I will because such has been delivered to me to do. That element ladies and gentlemen, hasn't changed. He still has all of those things. The kingdoms of this world and all of their glory. And Christ says very plainly, my kingdom is not of this world. I have a different kingdom. And it is in those respective spheres of which we both have and do not have the victory. And the Antichrist has both overcome us and has been overcome by us. Different spheres. In this worldly earthly sphere in which what matters is the worldly power and authority and influence and money and all the rest of it, Satan is in authority there and he has the victory over us. I don't know if you noticed. I'm not sure if you recognize this, but Orthodox Reformed Christians are not actually in power in the media, uh, in in Westminster, uh, in, in the culture in general. We're not actually the decision makers, believe it or not. Um, on, on the other hand, those who listen to the voice of the beast are. And that situation has been in place for a good long time, and it's actually going to remain until the end, in one way or another. I don't deny that every once in a while there's a little blip. And God, just to show his great power and just to show that he's ultimately in charge of these things for a little blip, maybe we'll put Christians in charge somewhere. But that is not the normal situation at all. But on the other hand, we have that victory where it really counts spiritually. My kingdom is not of this world, but it's a real kingdom. Don't forget that. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it's an eternal and everlasting kingdom. And soon enough, as this book says, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. My kingdom is not of this world, but soon enough it will be. And there and then we'll have the victory, we'll have, we'll win. Both in terms of what can be seen and also in terms of what is believed and is spiritual. 
Well, what does this mean for us? It means we need to have patience because that's what it says, Revelation 13, 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity must go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Patience and faith. Why patience? Because for the time being, the, the Antichrist has us under his foot in this world. So there's patience. We've got to wait until the end. The end of our lives or the end of the world, whichever comes first. We've got to have patience. And the other thing is we've got to have faith. Because of all the things that can be seen, why is it that, we are, we are, that this is our surroundings? I don't say that we'll forever be here. But this is not the most glorious building in this metropolitan area. Why is it that we are consigned to be here? Well, because all earthly authority and glory and all the rest of it has not been given to us. It's quite the opposite, you see. And what it means is we've got to, to have faith to see the things that are unseen and to give those things a proper priority. Because those things are eternal. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who cannot be seen. We put their faith in the shed blood of Christ, which we don't have here. I, I don't do a hocus-pocus magic trick and say, here's the blood of Christ. You put your faith in something that is not seen. Here is the patience and here is the faith of the saints. Now, if you want to go to a show, you can do that. But you need to know that if you want to go looking for a show, you are looking for the Antichrist. If that's your base inclination, that I, I wish that the Christian church had more of a show, you need to understand what you're looking for is not the real thing. You're looking for the Antichrist. Because there's no show to be found in the true religion of Jesus Christ. Matthew twelve thirty eight said, Some of the scribes and the Pharisees, just talked about them, said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered, Oh, yeah, sure. If he was the Antichrist, that's what he would have done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What do you want to see? I'll do it. I'll perform for you. But no, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except a sign of the prophet Jonah. No sign is going to be given to this evil and adulterous generation. I'm not going to perform for you. You, unregenerate, carnal, false professors of religion, you don't love me, you don't believe in me, you don't want me, and I'm not going to perform for you. There's nothing beautiful, there is nothing attractive in Christ, in the Messiah, that we should desire him. Now, other forms of Christianity, absolutely. If you want to show, you can find it. There's no doubt about that. But whether you want the bells and smells variety of times past, they're still around. Or whether you want the sort of images and, and, uh, and pop music variety... And, and shows and all the rest of it, that's certainly available. But just be clear that if you're looking for a show, you're looking for the Antichrist. Secondly, if you want soft and attractive words, you have to go to a politician or someone who's acting like a politician. The Antichrist is going to speak words that agree with the default settings of our hearts. You, do you believe that? The Antichrist is going to be speaking words that are in agreement, words that seem attractive to the unregenerate natural heart 
And the truth is always going to be at odds with those things. That's what it says in Isaiah 39. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, this is the prophets, say to the people who are supposed to be declaring the word of God to them, what do they say? Do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn from the path. And cause, this is the, the, the thing overall, the most important thing, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Because all that is leading up to the fact that we don't want this Holy One in our midst. And I've mentioned some of the characteristics of the anti-Christian religion, but one thing you're not going to encounter is the holiness of God there. You know for absolute certain. And whether you go to the bells and smells or whether you go to the, 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 the pop culture and the, uh, the images and all the rest of it, whatever variety of anti-Christian religion out there, you will not see, you will not experience the holiness of God in simplicity, in power, in the reality of that spiritual power through the word and spirit. Because the attraction and the method is all about the eyes and the ears and the nose. It's all about these senses. That is not the way the Lord operates in his church. You can't have both of those things. I know probably there are some churches that would want to. They're a little mixed up and they, they want to have half the, 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 the broad way and they want, also want to have the narrow way. But that's a lie of Satan too because you can't have those things. They don't mix. One of those things is going to cancel out the other. And soon enough one of them is going to prevail. But if you want the truth, if you want the words of life, and that's what it says. You know, uh, John 6, a uh, wonderful chapter in, in John, and Jesus had given these very hard sayings to these disciples that were following him. And he said, therefore, this is John six sixty five. I have said to you that no one can come to me unless he has been, it has been granted him by my Father. Now, that's, that's a harsh saying right there. He's already said some hard sayings. That are hard for them. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Then he goes on to say, no one can even come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. Calvinism. Predestination. You can't even come. The inability of man unless it's been granted by the father. Well, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered, I, th- I hope for all of us, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I, these other people don't like it. And you know, some part of me, I don't even like this. In the default settings of my heart, in my own sinful rebellion, I'm not so sure I like this message either, Lord, but I know this, that you have the words of eternal life. And so I better listen. I better cling on to you, whether I like it or not. You have the words of eternal life. And if you want to see Christ, I don't say if you want to see somebody dressed up like Christ. If you want to see Christ, if you want what it says here in John twelve twenty one, in this little, little brass plaque in the back, Sir, we wish to see Jesus not just someone dressed up like Christ that looks attractive to human eyes. And we need to understand what he looks like. And what he looks like is Isaiah 53 too. He has no form or comeliness. 
And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. And if you see something that's attractive and does have a form and comeliness that's attractive to people, if you see something that's going to be welcomed by the man on the street, then you know it's not the real thing because there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. We knew that by prophecy, and we know that in actual fact of history, it's irrefutable. So if you want to see Christ, you need to know what he looks like. There's nothing, humanly speaking, that's impressive about him. Fourthly and finally, I would say all of this, you wonder how how does this all all overcome? If this is the case, if, if Satan is absolutely swimming with the tide, if the Antichrist is working with this material, going in the direction of the default settings of the human heart, how is this going to be overcome? This is why you must be born again. Okay? That is the crucial reality. You have to be born again. If you're coming, in terms of nature, in terms of the way that the fallen human sinner is born, with the old principles of your heart, the old principles of your mind, of your affections, then it will never work. You won't come to Christ. You'll despise his word. You'll think that his church is contemptible. You won't want to be around his people. You'll leave when you get a chance. That's why you need to be born again. Now I say this, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 15.50, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. And that's just what it says in John 3, right? About speaking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus this one who, who knew so much, this one who was fully involved in a religion that I would seem to be very much infiltrated by the Antichrist. Jesus answered and said to him, John, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're not going to see it. You're not even going to want it. And when, you, when it's offered to you, when the gospel is offered to you, you're going to refuse it. You're going to find fault with it. And given half a chance, you'll find some religion like all the Pharisees did that is more suitable to the default settings of your human heart, where you get to work for your salvation, where there's some sort of outward show, where there are things heard that that appeal to you. Nicodemus asked him, how can a man be born again when he's old? It's a good question. Jesus answered the answer that we need to hear I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's something that I can't do. Something that no multimedia extravaganza can do. No bells and smells can do. Something that God can do through his Holy Spirit. He can supernaturally, through his Spirit, give you a new heart. Make you born again. And that must happen if you are to be a Christian. If you are to be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, at the end you have given us an impasse. 
We have seen more of the wickedness and depravity of the human heart. We've seen more of the cunning of Satan and more of his devices, his mission to take over all that is truly known as the church and replace things with his, his propaganda and his, his big shows. And the whole world is going to be given over to these things. And the whole world is given over to these things. And what are we left with, Lord? We're left with nothing except the absolute reality that we must be born again. As long as we remain as we are, as long as we remain under the old man, there's no hope. Lord God, you can reach down to this power, this great power of your Holy Spirit, and you can make us to be born again. And how we pray that we would and that you'd enable us to believe on this one who was despised and rejected, this one who had no former comeliness that we should want him, but the one who came with the words of life and who shed his blood for our sins. We ask it in his name. Amen.